0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll read verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Well, when we picked this text up last week, I pointed out that it, uh, it it kind of ties the strings together from going from chapter 5, verse 1 through uh, 6, 8. And of course, Paul has been dealing with just a, a terrible case of sexual immorality in the church at Corinth, and in fact, he identifies it as such a kind as not even uh, mentioned or known among the Gentiles. In other words, this was so this was so awful, off the charts, that, uh, that they should have been mourning over the sin, and their mourning over the sin ought to have led them to put the offender out of the church, but instead they'd become proud, they'd become arrogant, and the pride and the arrogance probably was a reflection of their own sense of, of how tolerant and loving and liberated they were. Um, Paul then goes into what he has decided to do, and we looked at that passage in detail. But And then Paul moves right in in chapter 6 about the, the, the travesty of Christians taking Christians to court. And, you know, the, frankly, when we think about the two cases that Paul's dealing with, The second one doesn't seem that bad in comparison to the first one. But the fact is, is that Paul is absolutely appalled by the fact that brother is taking brother to court and that before an unbeliever. And what sets up verses 9 through 11 is verses 7 and 8. He says, Actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be treated unjustly? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong, that is treat unjustly, and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous... now? This is a little harder to see in in English, but that term that you have in verses 7 and 8, wrong, is actually related to the idea of unrighteous. It's to treat unrighteously or to treat unjustly. And then Paul turns around and he says, don't you know that the unrighteous, that includes people that are taking other Christians to court unjustly, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us this incredible warning. And when he says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's making a statement that is con- uh, consistently uh, testified to through in the rest of the New Testament. We'll look at some of those in a minute. Paul then says, do not be deceived. And of course, as we, we noted last week, the idea is that it is so easy for us to make excuses for ourselves and to justify our own thoughts and words and behaviors and, and to think that somehow we really are uh, the, the exception. And Paul makes it clear, do not be deceived. Now, the, the end of that is the unrighteous or those who do these things, the kingdom of God will not inherit and, of course, the, the the deception comes in into thinking that I can get away with these things, do these things, these things can characterize my life, I can have these patterns of sin, not repent, and still go to heaven when I die. Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And he gives his vice list, uh, which we went through in detail last week, won't do it again tonight, And then again, verse 9, or I'm sorry, at the end of verse 10, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now you have to remember, this is not the only time Paul has said this. If you look over, just flip over a few pages to Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes a similar point, and it's worth us taking a a quick look at, Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 19, this, of course, is the list of the deeds of the flesh. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, they're obvious, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Paul usually begins his, his vice lists with sexual sin, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, that's uh, the the Greek expression there, pharmakeia, probably has to do with um, uh, the use of drugs in the occult. Um, Then enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. And so right in the middle of this vice list, Paul goes from the sins that are that are just clearly sinful to us to things that don 't seem that bad to us, but all of those things that Paul mentions in the middle actually have to do with how we end up treating each other i mean has has it ever occurred to us that when we become members of christ 's kingdom through the saving power of Christ, that he transforms us in such a way that it changes the way that we treat other people, and if we don't treat each other differently, it's an indication of the manifestation of the deeds of the flesh. Has it occurred to us that the that the primary focus of Paul's ethics in the New Testament ends up being this horizontal aspect of how we treat each other. How we treat each other is a manifestation of whether or not we know and love God. By the way, that's an argument in 1 John as well, right? So, um, you know, we're like, okay, yeah, idolaters, yeah, they're not going to go to heaven. Enmities, strife, strife, yikes, Jealousy, yikes. Outbursts of anger, whoops. Disputes, uh uh-oh. Dissensions, factions, envying. Envying, really. Drunkenness, back to the nasty ones. Carousing. And then Paul just says, and things like these. In other words, this is not an exhaustive list. But notice what he says in verse 21 after that. He says, of which I forewarn you. There's sobriety there. There's gravity there of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We see that. Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I take that to mean those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God no matter what they say. Okay. Ephesians chapter 5 Verse 3, Paul says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay. So, the warning here is, is straightforward, and that is that continuing in sinful conduct in an impenitent way, so the person's not repenting, this is, this is who they are, this is what characterizes them puts that person in incredible danger of not entering into the kingdom of God. Now, this, of course, just flies right in the face of, of our easy believism, right? Because what we've done is we've... Uh, <laughs> Bible teachers and theologians for a, a, a number of decades now have not struggled enough with the apparent tension in the New Testament between my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give eternal life to them, and they'll never perish. And those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so what we've done, and this is this is cheap and it's easy. We've said... Once saved, always saved. Say the prayer. You got fire insurance. And if you keep practicing these things, you're just a carnal Christian that you still get to heaven, but no reward. Okay? That's a lie. It's a lie. Eternal security is, is a true doctrine in the New Testament, but eternal security only applies to Christ's sheep. And who are Christ's sheep? Those who hear him and those who follow him. In other words, they are those who don't continue just to make this the habit and practice of their life. You see, there's a, there's a huge difference between, between saying once saved, always saved, Implication, i.e., no matter how you live, and the perseverance of the saints. It's the perseverance of the saints that says that God's true people will actually do what? Persevere in faith and good works to the end. That doesn't mean that it's all upward and onward. Um, that's not what that, that means at all. Um, It may be three steps forward, two steps back. It may be, you know, this hill, this valley. Uh, But here's the reality is that God preserves his own in such a way that they fight the fight of faith to death. And believe me, when, when we get... To the finish line we 'll have bruises and cuts, and some of us will be limping and so you know th- this is going to be you know the finish line of the christian of the Christian life is is a uh, motley crew finishing all right it 's not like you know you know running and you know chest breaking the ribbon and having a sense of triumph and victory this is This is like watching Dave Gamble run, okay? This is just hobbling along, doing your best, fall down. Hey, you know what? You know what God's people do when they fall down? They get back up. Do you know what God's people do when they fall into sin? They repent. And so the warning is a real warning, and warnings in the Bible are supposed to be a means to repentance and perseverance. That's how the warnings work. And uh, we've talked a lot about the warnings as we went through Hebrews. But just remember, the warnings are a means. The warnings are, are what, uh, what, what prod us. And so um, I, I've, I've noted this before. So the Puritans used to talk about the, uh, the hedge rows of the promises and the threats. And the promises and the threats are what keep you on the straight and narrow to heaven. And how do the promises and threats work? The promises work by keeping you from despair. They remind you you're kept by the power of God through faith. Um, They remind you, he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Those promises are what keep you from despair, but the threats are what keep you from presumption. And they keep you running. So the, the the activity of the Christian life is not like this. There's the finish line. So Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, right? The race set before us. The finish line's up there. This is not the way you run the Christian life. Backwards, okay? Wondering... Was I really saved? Was I really saved? Was I really saved? No. The idea of perseverance is not always going back. Was I really saved? The point of perseverance is I keep running, and as long as I keep running, I have assurance. As long as I keep running, I, st- I point forward, right? How many of you actually wonder, you don't need to raise your hand, but was I saved when I was 13, or was I saved when I was 17, or right? Right? <laughs> Yeah, you, you ever wonder that? And I mean, some of you you're like, no, it was a December thirty first, nineteen seventy, and uh, and I know because I once I was dead, and then that day I was alive. But for a lot of us, we're like, well what? I don't know. And here's the point: is that you don't just keep um, th- that's actually that's not the most important question. What day was I saved? Well, I know I was saved when I was four. I don't remember a thing about it, but I wrote it. My mom wrote it in my Bible. Okay. Well, that's that's the 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 important thing is is am I running now? Am I fighting now? Not have I been fighting for the last thirty five years or whatever? Am I fighting now? And so Paul gives this warning, and the warning is designed to do what? To drive these Corinthians to repentance. Listen, you keep living like this, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. What is that designed to do? It's designed to spur them on to repentance. Now, that was, that was last week. And I will tell you, I am so thankful for verse 11. Could you imagine if like verse 11 wasn't here? Thanks be to God for verse 11. He goes from warning to encouragement. He's not just going to stop at verse 10. He's not just going to say, you know, period, full stop, let's move on to the next subject at verse 10. He is he is going to turn around and affirm something magnificently true about the Corinthians. By the way, he did this in chapter 5 when he says, clean out the the leaven so that you can be a new lump. You remember this? Just as you already are, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been offered or sacrificed, right? So, in other words, you need to be this because you already are this. Here it is, You you need to make sure you don't continue in this. Why? Because, ultimately, that's what you used to be That's not what you are anymore. You know, that's, that's the, that's the hope and the power of the gospel, right? I mean, that is the message. New American Standard says, such were some of you. And that's, that's fine. That's, that, that captures it. But I, I like this a little better. This is what you used to be. Those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what you used to be. In other words, these are the kinds of people you used to be. And do you know? As soon as Paul says that, there is there is this this. Um, this whole truckload of just magnificent truth in this little tiny phrase. First of all, what Paul is telling us is that among God's people, there are all kinds of saved sinners with all kinds of paths, right? I mean, just as sure as there's, there is diversity among us for, you know, um, you know, what we do and, um, you know, uh, ethnicity and gender and all the things that, that, that there's diversity in. Here's this, here's this magnificent diversity within the body of Christ. Jesus is all about saving people who were all different kinds of sinners. I talked to a guy today on the phone for about an hour and... I met this guy at NSP. Now, he was calling to ask me about the call to the ministry because he believed that God may be calling him to serve in vocational ministry. You know what he used to be? A murderer. Killed somebody in a drug deal. That's what he used to be. Now he's saying, How do I know if the Lord's calling me into ministry? That's such were some of you. You know what this means is that that just look at the list. You mean there were actually ex-fornicators? Among the Corinthian assembly, yep, won't ask for a show of hands, but any ex-fornicators here, ex idolaters ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals, ex-thieves, ex-covetous, ex-drunkards, ex-revilers, ex-swindlers, man, you talk about, I mean, my goodness, you... If you didn't know any better, you would not leave your purse unattended in the Corinthian church. Right? But such were some of you. And here, here's the emphasis. This is, this is what he's now encouraging. So the, the first war, the warning is a warning to drive them into repentance. Now there's this sense of encouragement, right? And that is, listen, that stuff for you is past. It's not present. (laughs) You're new. You're different. You are not what you used to be. And in fact, you can't miss it, right? This is what you used to be. Such were some of you. Now, you have to understand that this is this is one of the reasons why um, the idea, for instance, of once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, is a big, fat, gospel-denying lie. Right? You know, Christians, we need to be more careful and discerning than we really are bunch of people sit around in a room and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. Even if Christ has come and changed their life, and that's what they were, but that's not what they are now. It's a gospel-denying lie, right? This is what we used to be. Now, you remember last week, I told you about this uh, figure of of speech, Polly Sendaton where you have this, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that exactly. You look in verses 9 and 10, you have this, uh, do not be deceived, and you get this, neither, nor, 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 right? Completely, completely unnecessary grammatically, but Paul does it for emphasis, putting that nor in front of each category, You know, he does the exact same thing in verse 11, just on the flip side. Notice this, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so it really, it makes this wonderfully symmetrical contrast of these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither these, neither the, nor, these, nor these, nor these, nor these, nor these. But 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 but. And so, what does he say? He says, first, again, notice the contrast. But you were washed. Now, the, the only other place that this word is used in the New Testament is in Acts twenty two sixteen, where Paul is recounting his own conversion and uh, and he's to, told, arise, Paul, go and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now, here's the interesting thing is that this word is a compound word with the, the verb wash and then a prepositional prefix, which means away. And so there's this emphasis, it's a strong idea, wash away, and and, and even the idea of wash away from yourself, wash away from you. Now, this presupposes something about sin, and that is that sin is filth, sin is uncleanness, sin is um, a sense of, Dirtiness, all right? One thing to remember when we talk to unbelievers, especially those that have um, a guilty conscience, is that there are certain things in their life that they've done that has made them feel unclean, right? Unclean. Here, this picture is, is that sin is, uh, is being dirty, it's being filthy, it's being stained, and salvation is pictured in terms of being washed, being made clean, being purified. And so the idea is, is that we once were dirty in our sins, but now... Right? So this the, the the great contrast, but now you are washed. I don't like um being dirty. I never have. Even when I was a little kid. I didn't I wasn't one of those kids that went out, sat in mud, and ate it. Okay? I didn't do that, I didn't like that. Um, I noticed that um, that Calvin exhibits some of the same traits. Ashley did as well, and you know, fall down and, you know, get dirt on your hands, and of course he's like, ah, handy wipe, please, you know, and that's kind of how I was. So one of the things that I hate really most about deer hunting, more than being cold, more than being uncomfortable, is the is the inability to to shower. Now, thanks be to God, I can't smell anything anymore, which which has benefits, but it also has certain liabilities. But I, I, I hate feeling dirty, right? I hate getting in, I mean, I'm just serious. I hate getting into a sleeping bag dirty. I hate getting up and putting on clothes dirty. So the best thing about being done with hunting is, guess what? Taking a shower. That's the best thing. It's better than saying, you know what, I, I, I killed this 800-pound buck, you know. Um, it's taking a shower. There's something about being clean. Well, here's, here's the reality is that, is that what is true physically is exponentially more true spiritually We know when we're dirty. We know when we're unclean. We know, and and yet the best thing, the best thing in life is to know that you stand clean before God. There's nothing better. There's nothing better. When, when, When you are unclean in your sin and you lay down at night and it's just you and your pillow and God, you're painfully aware of how dirty you are. And in fact, it may be dirt that that only you and God see. But the dirt of sin is the dirt of sin, and there there is nothing better than actually being washed, having your sins literally washed away, clean. Anthony Thistleton, who's a really marvelous commentator on 1 Corinthians, says, this washing clean, I love this, This washing clean is not just the forgiveness for which the believer asks day-by-day renewal. It is a wiping clean of the slate once and for all. You know, this looks like Psalm 103. He's cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Micah 7, he's cast them behind his back. Jeremiah 31, he remembers them no more. No amount of money in the entire world can bring you the kind of peace that being washed before the living God can bring. So you've been washed. Then he says, but you were sanctified now sanctified this of course is a, a a reference a word that refers to the the powerful work and operation of the holy spirit and normally when we think of sanctification what what kind of sanctification do we think about progressive right we think of and and this is this is This is fine. This is right. When we think of sanctification, normally what we think about is this idea of um, the Holy Spirit indwells me, and through the Spirit and the Word and through suffering and through God's people and through all these different kinds of means, I am being progressively sanctified, right? This is how we usually think about it. And I'm being made more and more holy, incrementally, right? And that's how we normally think about sanctification. But notice what Paul says here. He doesn't say, but you're being sanctified. What does he say? But you... Yeah. Yeah. All right, so this is... This is our uh, one and only grammar lesson for tonight. Aorist, passive... Indicative, aorist, past tense verb, okay? Passive, was done to me. Indicative, statement of fact or reality. So this is something that has been done, and it's been done to me. Okay? Progressive sanctification is something that, that we do and God does, Right? Right, so classic passage on progressive sanctification, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So guess what? Is that, is that effort on your part? <laughs> if, if that's not effort, I would have to say I don't know what effort is. Okay, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And so progressive sanctification is me working, but God by his grace and spirit working with me and in me and through me. All right? This sanctification that Paul's talking about here, which is also the way that he opens up the letter, is not the progressive sort Okay. So progressive sanctification would be like present sanctification. This is not future sanctification. What's future sanctification? Future sanctification is glorification. <laughs> that is future. So future sanctification is when I am finally and eternally separate from sin and perfectly conformed to the image of my Savior. And that happens not until the Lord Returns, okay? So if it's not present, it's not future, then it must be past. But in what way have I been sanctified in the past? We don't believe in the idea of um, of total sanctification. We don't believe in the idea of, um, of uh, perfectionism, the idea that... Um, that I had an experience that now has separated me from sin for the rest of my life, okay? If you've had an experience that separates you from sin for the rest of your life, it's called death, (laughs) all right? Um, Because as long as you're breathing, guess what? Yeah, Indwelling sin, (laughs) remaining corruption, this is... So, in what way have I been sanctified? This is what I would... What I would call not me, but John Murray, who does a brilliant job on this, definitive sanctification, okay definitive sanctification, and definitive sanctification is the idea of this of, of a decisive break with the old. Um, definitive sanctification would be the language. Uh, that Paul uses of the believer's relationship to sin in Romans six one through seven six, okay. um, dead to sin, right? Alive in Christ, dead with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ. Sin no longer reigns over me, and so I put the uh, I put the uh, quotation in there for you. Murray writes. When a person dies, he's no longer active in the sphere or realm or relation in reference to which he has died. That's obvious. And the person who died to sin, I should say no, longer lives in that sphere. His tie with it has been broken and he's been translated into another realm and it's a it's a cleavage, a breach, a translation that has been as really and decisively true in the sphere of moral and religious relationship as in the ordinary experience of death. There is a once for all definitive and irreversible breach with the realm in which sin reigns unto death. There's no possibility of toning down the antithesis. There's an absolute differentiation. This means that there is a decisive and definitive breach with the power and service of sin in the case of everyone who has come under the control of the provisions of grace. That's what Murray means by by definitive sanctification. The idea is, is that when I come to Jesus Christ and I'm in union with Christ now, by the work of the Spirit, by faith, I'm in union with Christ, by virtue of that union with Christ, by, by necessity, my relationship to sin has now changed. Okay. So before I be, before I come to Christ, guess what? I live in the realm of sin. It is in sin that I live and move and have my being. When I am saved, when I am rescued, when I'm redeemed, I'm taken out of that realm, which is also the kingdom of darkness, uh, the dominion of darkness, the realm of sin and death. I am taken out of that realm and I'm put into union with Jesus Christ. I'm made alive. So even though I, I lived in sin, I was dead in trespasses and sins, there's a resurrection and a translation that takes place. And now, and now my relationship with my former realm has now been changed. So I'm dead to sin. Now, does that then mean that I never sin again. It's not what it means at all. But what it most certainly means is that I do not sin in the same ways that I used to, in the same degrees. So here's here's what happens. So I'm taken out of the realm of, of sin and death. I'm rescued. I'm transferred out. So now I'm dead to that. Right? I'm dead to that because I've been in life to God. And now what happens is when I go back to that, there's something inside of me by virtue of the Holy Spirit that tells me that's not where I belong. That's not where my life is, that's not where my joy is, that's not where my hope is. It's not that the believer doesn't sin anymore, but it does mean that that breach is is such a definitive, decisive break that I can never go back there and be comfortable ever again. I'm changed. And I, I may sin, but definitive sanctification tells me that I'm never comfortable in my sin. This is part of the warning, isn't it? Those who practice such things, that is, those who live in that realm, who think that they're over here, but they live over here. This is the truth. And for some, it will take judgment day to bear it out. But thanks be to God, there's a definitive break. So here's, here's just a homely illustration. So I was, I came to Christ when I was 13 years old. And I was one of the, most rotten thirteen year olds you could have ever met as an altar boy, I was from all appearances a good kid, but I was evil right, and one of the things that I did is at 13 years old at holy family catholic school is i could cuss like a sailor and i also was mean to other kids and in september of 1980 when i came to faith in christ it's not as if i never said another bad word But the minute I did, I knew I shouldn't have prayed for forgiveness and help not to do it again. When I found myself being mean to other kids for a laugh, I would go home heartbroken and look for an opportunity to apologize and ask for forgiveness. One particular kid that I was mean to, his name was Tom, and um, I won't tell you the things I did to him, they're shameful. And I went through eighth grade, went off to public school, he went off to uh, Catholic school. And the years pass, and I heard in my senior year of high school that Tom had been in a car accident. So I was praying for him, and in the course of praying for him, I was like, "Lord, please give me an opportunity to ask Tom for forgiveness for all of the terrible things I did to him." And so one day, I went to one year at community college, American River College in Sacramento, and and I'm sitting on a bench reading my Bible. And this guy comes and sits down next to me. And he says, what are you reading? And I said, I'm reading my Bible. He goes, I thought you were reading a Bible. And I said, yeah. I said, I'm a Christian. And he goes, really? He says, I'm a Christian too. And I said, oh, that's great. And uh, I said, um, he said, so why are you reading your Bible? I said, well, I mean, I love the Lord. And and um, I think I might be a pastor someday too. And he goes, really? He goes, I'm going to be a priest. And I said, oh. I said, really? And I'm thinking, oh, I get to talk to somebody who's going to be a priest. And he's sitting there no more than a foot, foot and a half away from me. And he looks at me. And he says, Brian Borgman? And I said, yeah. Yeah. And he scoots away from me. And I said, Tom? And he said, yeah. And I said, I've been praying that we would meet sometime because I need to ask you to forgive me for all of the terrible things I did to you. Talk to him about the gospel. Such were. Some of you. Then he says, but you were justified. And, of course, justification. All right, so here's, here's a quiz. Is justification transformation? Okay, if, if you get this wrong, you need to go back and relearn all these banners. All right? Is justification transformation? And the answer is no, it is not. Justification is forensic, that is, it's legal, and it is imputation. All right? There's there's no inherent transformation that takes place by virtue of justification. Justification is a declaration of my standing with God. By the way, the, 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 the problem with, with Roman Catholic uh, teaching on justification is that they, they, um, they smuggle sanctification into justification so that your growth in holiness and your sanctification becomes, in a sense, the foundation for your justification. And let me just say, we better hope that that's not true. Do you really want your standing with God to be based on, in part, what you do? No. So justification is, is a legal declaration by God where, by virtue of Christ's active and passive obedience, he imputes to us Christ's righteousness and declares us to be righteous. Okay? That declaration is a legal declaration based on the imputation so God charging to my account Christ's righteousness and charging to Christ's account what my sin this is the great exchange this is this is justification it is a once and for all act. And so the emphasis here is on this new standing, this new relationship, and it is it is legal. And here is, I mean in in a sense when you think about it, this is the good news we preach to ourselves. Right? The good news we preach to ourselves is not, "Lord, you know I used to be really bad and now I'm really good." That's that won't preach. <laughs> All right? And if if that preaches to you, then Then you're confused, dangerously confused. The good news that I preach to myself that gives me any comfort any hope is that Jesus Christ lived the life that I never could have lived in obedience to God and he had a perfect sinless righteousness and here's the good news is that that perfect sinless righteousness has been charged to my account I'm clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness so that when God sees me he accepts me because of Christ's righteousness that clothes me and in turn my sin is all pardoned because it in turn had been imputed to Christ who bore the penalty and the wrath in my place that's the gospel that is the gospel and the only comfort that I have in this life and judgment day will be that Jesus Christ lived for me and Jesus Christ died for me and that's my only righteousness and now The Father accepts us not because of our works but because of Christ's work. The Father accepts us as righteous in Christ. That changes your relationship with God. So we've Been singing this sovereign grace song, which I just love. So the old is gone, the new has come. What you complete is completely done. We're heirs with Christ, the victory won. What you complete is completely done. And then Paul wraps it up by saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So so all of this happens, washed, okay? sanctified justified right all of this happens in the power the name of our lord jesus christ there is salvation in none other than in jesus christ period period he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so all of this happens by the power of Jesus Christ. And so in Christ, what do we have? In Christ, we have real, true, lasting, permanent cleansing of sin. The guilt has been taken away. What do we have in Christ? In Christ, we have the power to, uh, the, to break sin's bondage. He breaks the power of canceled sin. What do we have in Christ, we have righteousness to justify us from sin. By the way, this is what Paul's already told us in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. Just fantastic, wonderful. Boy, our hearts ought to just sing at this little phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of my union with him, my sins are washed away forever. Because of him, I have been, my, my, my bondage to sin has been broken. Because of him, I've been justified, declared righteous. And then notice Paul says, and in the spirit of our God. And so I, I think that the reason Paul says both Christ and the Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is in a sense the, the divine agent of that renewal. His work is powerful and transforming, but he has a, a specific role in redemption. So Christ accomplishes redemption for us. The Spirit comes with power and applies that redemption to us. And so the Holy Spirit is in in a sense the uh, the divine agent, the divine activator, the divine applier of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ to us. And notice it's the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit, they always go together. Redemption's accomplished by Christ, redemption is applied by the Holy Spirit, and he does it in a life-changing way such were some of you. So, this passage should, on the one hand warn us for sure the warning's a real warning, but it ought to encourage us. It ought to encourage us. you ever get discouraged in your Christian life? Do you ever think to yourself man, I, I should be farther along I shouldn't be struggling with the same sins and one of the one of the greatest preachers in a, in Colonial America was a man by the name of Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies um, was British, came over to the colonies, um, was the first uh, president of Princeton. It was known as the Log College then. And Davies died, at I think, about age 37. But he was a tireless uh, worker for the gospel, preached... Um, great stories about Samuel Davies. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones thought Samuel Davies was the best preacher America had ever produced. Great stories about his courage and his faithfulness. And Davies is, is dying, and he writes a letter to his friend. And he says, I am so ashamed that I've made such little progress in holiness. God forgive me. I should be so much farther along. I think that's just the heartbeat of a true saint. True saint never says, boy, wait till you get where I am, then you'll really be blessed. Wait till, you, wait till you reach the plateaus that I've reached. You'll be so blissed out you won't even be able to see straight. The true child of God says, you know, I know that I am not what I ought to be. I'm not even what I want to be. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, I am not what I used to be. That is the reality and the power of the gospel. And it should encourage each and every one of us. Sometimes what we do is we look, we look at our own life and our own sin in such a, in such a small little window of time. Stretch it out. See what God's done. I can promise that you'll see. You're not the person you used to be. Such were some of you. That you were washed. That you were sanctified. That you were justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the spirit of our God. Amen. Father we thank you <clears throat> for verse 11 we pray that we would be so gripped by the beauty and the power of the gospel the wonder of Christ and his love for us we pray even tonight we would we would revel in that what we used to be we are no more And so, Father, we pray that you would help us, help us by the power of your grace to fight our sin, help us to put it to death, help us to pursue holiness, help us to to pursue Christ. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you promised to do. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.